To slow the spread of COVID-19, officials have imposed extensive community-level mitigation measures, including mask mandates and travel restrictions. In response, more than a thousand lawsuits have been filed. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michelle Mello, a professor of law and of health research and policy at Stanford University. Professor Mello has co-authored a perspective article on legal cases related to COVID-19 emergency orders and the future of public health law. Professor Mello, could you start by describing the kinds of emergency orders that officials have imposed during the past year and a half? What types of measures have been put in place throughout the United States and what types have been implemented less consistently? Well, as you know, right now we see a schism across parts of the United States in the types of orders that are in place. But casting our minds back to spring of 2020, when a lot of these lawsuits got brought, the situation was actually pretty uniform. Whether you were a red state or a blue state, you were doing things like uh, shutting down schools, shuttering businesses, particularly businesses that were deemed non-essential imposing restrictions on the number of people that could gather indoors or outdoors at one time. Later on, imposing mandates for masks and social distancing as businesses started to reopen and imposing orders that required people to stay at home. What's new this year is the prospect of mandates for vaccinations, as well as this growing schism across the states that has now put some states in the position of imposing orders to prevent those mitigation orders from being entered by subordinate units of government. In other words, states saying that school districts or local governments can't require masks or do other things. So what kinds of orders have been subject to the most lawsuits and who's filing those lawsuits? It's a very large tally, so I'd have to go back and count, but it seems like the most significant area of litigation has been in response to orders that shutter businesses or confine people at home or restrict gatherings. And the types of people that have been challenging these have been individuals who don't like those orders, either because they restrict their personal liberty or they feel they burden their use of personal property, like a vacation home in another state. And then the businesses themselves that have been subject to closure orders or other kinds of restrictions that cost them money as well as increasingly religious organizations who read into or are subject to explicit restrictions on in-person worship. So in your perspective article, you write that courts have historically been deferential to health orders, and you cite particularly the 195 case, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. How have the courts applied that decision in cases related to COVID-19? Up until COVID-19, there was a pretty consistent line in the courts, which was that Jacobson stood for the proposition that states and their designees, like local governments, could enact reasonable and necessary public health orders and just had to withstand kind of very light level of review by the courts. Essentially, if it wasn't crazy, the courts were going to uphold it. We began to see a little bit of chipping away at that norm in a couple of areas. One is restrictions that implicated people's free speech rights, and the other was in areas that implicated religious worship. But it wasn't until COVID-19 that the courts really had to bite down hard on a question that they had been avoiding so hard, which is, how do we interpret Jacobson, this old case, in light of contemporary understandings of civil liberties, and especially in light of the way our new Supreme Court justices might take particular views about religious liberty and religious freedom. What does it all mean? 
how do we balance Jacobson's basic premise that we need to leave public health officials at liberty to do the things that in their expert judgment are necessary and reasonable with our increasing skepticism that we can count on government to stay out of sacred areas like free speech and religious worship unless absolutely necessary. So in that regard, to what extent have the courts considered the science of disease transmission risk in these decisions? At the lower court level, we've seen a lot of variation with some judges really engaging with the science. The judges receive this science in what we call the factual record of the case. The parties provide briefs that spin it all out for them with appropriate citations. If there's a hearing or trial, there might be witnesses, the experts that testify to this. So they get a lot of information about the science, but what they do with it is really up to them. And as I said, in the lower courts, some judges have really engaged with it, have really followed it. And other courts have sort of shunted it aside and instead rested their decisions on broader principles, such as the importance of religious liberty or the need to separate arms of government and make sure that they stick to their constitutionally allocated responsibilities. And in particular, it's notable that in some of the Supreme Court's recent decisions regarding the implication of free exercise of religion for some of these business closure orders and restrictions on gatherings, even though the court has been given this very detailed factual record laying out why public health officials thought it was important to impose these restrictions and why they differentiated between, say, a movie theater and a church or a bike shop and an in-home Bible study. We don't see judges paying a lot of attention to that record. And I think a charitable way to put it might be that they're second guessing the judgments made by officials. Another way to put it would be to say that they really have ignored that factual record. And the dissenters in these Supreme Court cases have picked up on that and said, wait a minute, you say the state needs to make a case for these restrictions. Well, it did. Here's the case it made. It doesn't seem crazy to us. And that's the standard that we ought to stick to. It doesn't seem crazy. In various industries and various parts of the country, there's been increased discussion about vaccine mandates over the past couple of months. In what instances do you think it's appropriate to mandate vaccination? And how do you see the courts looking at that? I'm going to step out of my role as just a lawyer, I suppose, because when you ask me, when does it make sense? That's about more than what's legal. We could do a variety of things that are legal, including a broad swath of different kinds of vaccination mandates. But we still might have some pause about whether that's the right thing to do, all things considered. And that's because with any public health law strategy that involves coercion, takes away people's choices, we're always at risk of a backlash that people will not comply or they'll create great difficulty for the officials who then have to enforce those orders. School vaccination mandates usually work pretty well in terms of enforcement because we have that ready-made lever. The kid is not going to get in the schoolyard gates unless that paperwork has been filled out to the state's satisfaction. We don't really have that for the general population of U.S. adults. What we do have is an unprecedentedly large group of American adults who feel that they shouldn't have to take the vaccine. So if we were to go about sort of imposing like a statewide mandate, all adults have to receive this vaccine, it's going to face some significant enforcement challenges and likely some significant backlash. And one of the worries is that that kind of backlash might spill over into people's feelings about other kinds of vaccines. So people who previously were willing to take other vaccines might now begin to feel feelings about the government that they didn't have before and where their children are involved or where their physician is involved, they might be pushing back on recommended vaccines in a way that they didn't before. So I think the question of whether and how to impose mandates is really tricky. 
And if we're going to really pay attention to the issue of levers, of enforcement levers, it makes sense that employers would be the ones to impose these mandates along with select other institutions that have a high degree of control over people like colleges or correctional institutions or the military. Those places can enforce mandates. Governors have trouble with it. Finally, as you said earlier, state legislatures in some places have started enacting legislation that strips local officials and some state officials of public health powers. How do you think these moves and recent court decisions about executive authority are going to affect future public health responses? That's a great question. We've seen now over the last 17 or 18 months, this growing anger over the amount of discretion that ordinary health officials have to impose orders that really tamp down on individual liberties. And so the solution that many red states have hit upon is to have their legislature pass a bill saying officials can't do these sorts of things anymore. Sometimes those statutes have been narrow, like North Dakota has banned mask mandates, Montana bans certain kinds of quarantines, but sometimes they're more general and really take away emergency powers in a more general way. And that is the kind of thing that really concerns me when we think about what happens during the next surge of the next pandemic. Of course, there will be another pandemic. We have long been in a sort of reckoning process with the question of how much discretion do we want to grant governors and health officials to respond to the next pandemic agent, whatever that is. It's unknown. We can't know in advance exactly what's going to be required. And so the thinking has been, let's vest them with very broad emergency powers, but let's have some checks and balances to make sure that they're not abused. And the checks and balances are mostly time limitations. They can't impose these orders forever. They have to keep declaring an emergency. And at some point, courts are going to question them if that's not reasonable. And some basic due process for people who are subject to confinement under these orders. That's worked pretty well for the last 20 years or so. If we now sweep away that balance and instead say, for example, that before they implement a stay-at-home order, health officials have to go through a notice and comment period. We're going to call it an administrative rule. We're going to subject them to all of the procedural requirements of other administrative rules, which take years on average. Or health officials can't do this at all. It has to be an act of the legislature, even though in most states, legislatures are not swift moving and in some cases are utterly paralyzed by partisanship. Then we really begin to tie the hands of the people who might be in a position to nip a potential epidemic early in the bud. Thank you, Professor Mello.